we can look back at it and say, well, we don't worship those kinds of idols, but anything that takes the place of God, takes the place of Jesus in our heart, becomes an idol, becomes what we worship. And it's so it, we want, what we want to do is identify, take an honest look at our heart, allow God to take an honest look at our heart to identify those things that keep us from surrendering to Him. And so there is a battle for our heart. Paul said that we were in a battle. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we battle in the spirit. And it's a, it's, a, it's a battle between our spirit man and the flesh man. Everyone's in that battle. There are no exceptions and no exemptions from that battle. We're in a war, and the war is for our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So everything flows from our innermost being, the real us. So today we're going to continue to look at specific idols in our lives. Last week we looked at the, the gods of pleasure, entertainment, food, sex, those things. Not bad in and of, in and of themselves. They're good from God, but they can become bad when they, again, when, they, when we go to them for peace, when we go to them for contentment, joy instead of Christ, allowing them to minister to us instead of Him. And as we jump in today, there's a few quotes up there that are uh, kind of along the lines of this God of love. That's what we're going to be looking at today, a God of love. Heaven isn't a place for those who are afraid of hell. It's a place for those who love God. Does anyone else have that testimony in their life? That's kind of how I was raised. That quote nails how I was raised. I was raised in the church, but we were uh, more afraid of hell than loving God. And so, you know, salvation was to do whatever you can to stay out of hell. Nobody wanted to go there. Instead of understanding that we are loved by God Almighty. Next one is, since we are made for eternity, the things of time cannot fully and permanently satisfy. Things of time, the things here, the temporary. Because even love and relationships on the earth are temporary in light of eternity. And they're not made to fully and permanently satisfy. But the problem is this, when, it become, when, when love becomes an idol, is when we try to make those things that fully and permanently satisfy the hearts of another word. It's not made to work. And then Timothy Keller says, it's the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Isn't that fantastic? That sums up the gospel. I was flawed and he had to, but out of his great love, he wanted to. He was glad to do it for me. And so we're going to look at this God of love. And a couple of questions. What or who do you love? What or whom do you give your affection to? What or whom do you look to to satisfy the longings and the depths of your heart, those places that tend to be empty, those, those places that tend to make a search out. What do you love? Who do you love? Love is pervasive in our culture, isn't it? Isn't the word love, especially in America, how it is thrown around, it's overused, and it's abused? I can say I love my wife and I love tacos. And it's a perfect storm for me because I love my wife's tacos. But isn't that funny how we can do that? Oh, I really love that. Uh, I really love that. And I think sometimes we can, we can lose something. We can lose the power, the understanding, the significance of the word love. 
Love is incredibly powerful, specifically as it pertains to our hearts in human relationships. Isn't it true that it can cause the toughest and burliest of men to become puppy-like? Have you ever seen men, you know, when they just talk and these guys are, and they fall in love, or you hand them their baby for the first time, they're a ball of muck. And they're not so tough anymore. And so love is a very powerful thing, and you get that imagery in your mind. It can invoke a huge spectrum of emotions, from great joy to dark depression, from kind tenderness to jealous rage and anger. This idea of love is very powerful. The false forms of love can make people manipulative, insecure, controlling, possessive, fearful, even abusive. There's a lot in our, you know, in, 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 there's a lot on the news right now about football players abusing, and and, 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 and so it's kind of become on the forefront of, of, of domestic abuse, and it's kind of there's some light shining on it, which there needs to be, and people need to be held accountable for that stuff. My mom's family, there was a lot of that that happened along with addiction. And I've shared about this before in the God questions, but um, it's interesting to me why people stay in those relationships and we can stand back and we can kind of judge those things. We must be very careful. But it's interesting how love seems to be a such a powerful thing that it will make you endure things that you personally shouldn't have to endure. Love is a very powerful thing. And it can invoke all kinds of different emotions. Why is it so powerful? I think the idea of love is that what we worship. Remember as children we read books that end with and they live we love those, right? Most of the time. And so we end up putting that dream on the altar and then bowing down to it. Because we ultimately, we want to live happily ever after in these relationships. In our culture, romantic love is held as this ultimate human experience. Subject of countless books, it has inspired works of poetry, art, the plot line of innumerable movies. It's the theme of almost every song. But don't get me wrong now. These relationships are a beautiful thing. Again, they are gifts from God. Just remember as you look at pleasure, God gives gifts. And relationships, earthly relationships, He gives those as gifts to steward and to say, do it the right way. Again, we looked at this last week in, in, in the idea of pleasure. I've given you gifts but now you must manage them and do them the right way. What happens is we take the gift and we exalt the gift above the giver of the gift. And we make our life about the gift. Well, that's a, that's a slippery slope. And the same thing with human relationships is that God gives us those as gifts upon the earth, but He said there's a right way and there's a wrong way to handle those. And the problem comes is when those relationships replace Him. Those relationships become the place in our heart that only He can fill. 
And so you have these relationships, marriage, you have children, you have friendships. And he, again, enjoys giving those as gifts. But where, how, do we, how do we value those in, in light of Christ? So why is this so prevalent to us? Why should this matter to us? It's because we were created to love and be loved. It's a part of how we're made. We're created to love and to be loved. All of us have an innate desire to be loved, accepted, validated, noticed, cherished, treasured. We have that within us. If you don't believe me, look at Facebook for those that are on there. People want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be validated. We want people to say, you got it all together. You look good. You are good. You're so loving. And we, 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 we look to people to validate those places in our heart to say, I am really good. I, I do have what it takes. And we look to people to give us value that, that, that only Christ gives. And that's what causes us to get into such torment. And the whole Facebook world, what we put out there on Facebook is kind of funny. It's kind of putting our best out there. I know sometimes people are just silly and they put silly stuff out there. But a Facebook profile picture, people put their very best out there. We'll go through 30 pictures to find the one that really looks good. Now that's the one, that's the profile picture right there. Boom, and it's just me. 20 pounds lighter 20 years ago. That doesn't even look like you. We put the quotes that kind of make us look smart. Because you know what we really want people to do? And on Facebook, if you're not familiar with that, there's a like button. How many likes will you get? Oh, that profile picture, you know. It gets a bunch of likes, or you put something out there and people like it. I'm like, it's so easy to like it. Why don't you comment on it? Then liking is really not good. Ultimately, it should be a love button because we want to be loved, we want to be accepted, we put ourselves out there. Our best picks, our proudest moments. Most of the time, you don't see this on Facebook. Take that in real quick. You don't see profile pictures. And again, unless somebody's being silly, you don't see a profile picture like that. My goal is exceptional mediocrity. Just aiming high. My favorite quote I'm taking care of my procrastination issues. Just you wait and see. Nobody does that unless they're being silly. Or what's worse is they put that kind of stuff to to have people feel sorry for them. Kitty Facebook is what I like to call it. Please feel sorry for me. Please say something kind to me because I'm having a real bad day and I'm getting way too much information in, in, a, in a social media type situation. Stop nudging your neighbor. You know what I'm talking about. Feel sorry for me. Say something. I'm having a bad day, so I'm going to let the whole world know. Why is that? It's because we want to be loved, we want to be accepted, we want to be thought about, we want to be cherished, and we want to be treasured. And human relationships 
in the right way can give us a piece of that, but they cannot give us what we are looking for. Nobody puts an honest Facebook profile. This is what I'm looking like today. Sorry. So everyone has a desire, an innate desire, and again, to be loved and to love as how creates what God created. There's nothing wrong with that. God put that in the human heart. And ultimately, He created us to love us Himself and for us to love Him. Again, He gives us gifts in this life to enjoy the right way. But when we get outside His parameter, or we put those things above Him, they become idols. And this whole idea of the God of love, and we begin to worship Him. And human relationships, again, can become that as well. Maybe more than anything else in our life. So relationships are this sweet gift from God. I mean, even when Jesus was on the earth, He was revealing God as Father. One of the names of Christ is Bridegroom. And so even human relationships point to the reality of Christ, and they point us to the reality of God. But when those relationships in your life get to an unhealthy place, they become our God. That which comforts you, it becomes your chief source of comfort. It's what gives you the greatest peace, the greatest joy, the greatest contentment. It ministers to you instead of God ministering to you. It has become your God. Because here's the troubling thing. When human relationships take the place of God in our lives, they inevitably become toxic. Why is that? Because a person can't be to you what only God can be. See, God in His mercy doesn't want to allow those things, either pleasure, love, we'll get into more in the next few weeks. He does not want those to bring you joy, peace, and contentment that only He can bring. And in His mercy, you end up empty from those because He's trying to, again, draw our hearts. He's constantly drawing us to Himself. Stop looking to the other things. Stop looking at them to give you value and to validate you. So it's out of His mercy. And those, those relationships become toxic. And they can lead to frustration. They can lead to resentment. Because that person is not being to me what I'm expecting or wanting that only God can do. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. So how do we know when a human relationship has become a God in our life? The obvious answers are we, that what we looked at last week, and we'll continue to put these questions before us as kind of these, you know, to, to, to take that honest look in our hearts, to do this inventory. And so a couple of questions. Am I looking for that relationship to comfort me? So I'm looking for that person to comfort me, to be my comfort. I'm not saying that we can't comfort one another. You guys understand what I'm saying. I'm saying that it comes in the place of God's comfort. Has that relationship, do I look for that relationship to give me peace that only Christ can give me? Do I look for that relationship to give me joy, contentment that only Christ can give? Am I looking for that relationship to validate me or ultimately minister to me? Here's some signs that a human relationship has become a God. 
you have regular frustration or resentment of that person because they aren't meeting a deep need of your heart that only God can. So you feel let down by them regularly. Again, I'm just asking you to take that honest look here. Is the next one. You sacrifice your time with God for them. There have been, there's been compromise in the relationship. You've crossed lines that you said you would never cross. You see this in a lot of times in dating relationships. Girls will give over their sexuality to a guy so they don't lose them. The guys will say, well, if you really loved me, then... And then so girls will give sexuality to get love. Guys will give a false sense of love and nurturing to ultimately get sexuality. And they're looking for those relationships and so then they cross those lines and they compromise. And ultimately there's no joy, no true joy, no, no peace there. I'm not saying not, there, there's probably a temporary joy and peace, but it doesn't last. Here's another thing. Your identity is in that relationship instead of Jesus. Your identity is being a mom, being a dad. That's, that's, that's where you get the ultimate value and validate. People go, man, you're such a great mom. You're such a great dad. And that's that sense of value that you get. Again, it's not wrong to be a great mom or great dad, but a lot of times we get these out of whack and we set our identity of who we are as a mom or a dad or a friend above Christ. And so we get validated. People go, man, you're so good at, you're so good at being a dad. And that kind of puts us in that place of making us feel good. And so your identity becomes in it. And it gets unhealthy. And so this is not just ro- romantic love that gets in the way. When your identity you know, gets into in a, in a place where you're, again, looking to those relationships to give you value. Maybe it's at work. And those work relationships and maybe there's, there's a void somewhere else because you get validated at work. You're such a hard worker and you feel so good about that. Or a teacher or a coach. And you look to, uh, you either have your identity in that or you look to those people to minister to you. So it's twofold. Sometimes it's our identity as that. Sometimes it's what we look to those people to fill in our hearts. Or a pastor. It can get unhealthy and my identity can be in it. Or it can be unhealthy that people look to a pastor to, to again, not that we don't have a, a type of relationship there, but when we put them in the place of God, we cross the line. There's a passage of Scripture. Remember when Moses was going, uh, they were leading the children of Israel from Egypt, and they come in the wilderness, and, and, and God invites the people, at first he invites the people to come up and remember what the people said, Moses, you go for us. You go for us. We'll stay here. You you go for us. And that ultimately, that, that initial thing with God was saying, you all come. And so a lot of times we want people to do the ministry for us. You go for us. You, you do it. Thank you, Pastor, for reading the Bible and studying this week. You do it for me. It's like, no, God is inviting you to relationship with Himself. He's inviting you to worship Him and read His Word. Because again, there's nothing wrong with relationships, but we can get those out of whack and get our identity in it or look to those people to fill something 
And here's the thing. When we do it the right way, relationships are sweeter. When we have it in the right order, relationships are beautiful because we're doing it the way God wanted us to do it. Genesis 29 is the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Some of you are familiar with that. Remember, Jacob is looking for a wife. He travels. He finds Laban. Laban has two daughters. Laban has an older one, Leah, and the younger one, Rachel. Jacob is madly in love with Rachel. She's beautiful. He just says, I, 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 I want to marry her. And Laban goes, all right, I tell you what, you can you know, marry her, but you have to work seven years for me. And you can have her as a wife. And, and, and Jacob's like, done. I'm ready. So he works seven years. Comes the night of the wedding, and uh, and, and, and they do the wedding. He goes into the tent to consummate the relationship. I'm not going to get too detailed there, but it must have been really dark because they wake up and it's Leah. Laban has sent Leah in there. Now I'm not saying that's healthy. We have a lot of dysfunction in the Bible. And Jacob is like, man, you, you deceived me. I wanted Rachel. And, he, and, and, and Laban's like, well, you know, Leah's the oldest. So it's not customary for us to marry off the younger one, but if you'll work another seven years, I'll give you Rachel too. So ultimately, he's married to two women, two sisters. Just keep reading the story. You can see that that is not a good idea at all. God redeemed it. There was the 12 tribes of Israel through that. But it was dysfunctional. But Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah loved him and she wanted more than anything else for him to love her. But he's not really interested in that because Rachel is the one that he loves. He favors her. And so Leah spends her life hoping, dreaming of the day that she will feel some sort of love from him. And so she makes it her life goal to win the heart of her husband. And ultimately, that's what she starts putting her hope in. And you can see that. One thing she has going for her is she's able to have children when Rachel has, she has trouble conceiving. And so with every child, Leah is thinking, maybe now my husband will notice me. Maybe now he'll love me. Here's what it says, Genesis 29, 32-35 says this. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. But what was her misery? It was because... He loves my sister more than me. And then when here's what she says, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will be attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons. So he named, he was named Levi. Every time a child comes along, she says, finally, he'll love me. He'll be attached to me. Finally, we can have a real marriage. So what she was wanting desperately is that she wanted to be loved to the point it had become the God that she was worshiping. And notice that it left her deflated and hurting every single time. But then something happens. And so she, she's so desperate to find satisfaction from the God of romantic love. And every time she gives birth, she's thinking, now my husband will notice me. But it never happened. Then we read this in 35. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which is like the word for praise and Hebrew. 
So she finally stopped looking to her husband for those things that only God could give her. And she turned to God and she said, I, I, will, I will praise the Lord. This time I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to get my eyes off of my circumstances. I'm going to get my eyes on Him. I'm not going to look at empty human relationships that may not ever satisfy. She stopped looking to Jacob to meet her needs and she had the right response. See, relational idols usually come because there was a relational void in our life. We didn't feel loved by maybe a mother or a father. Maybe we were neglected. Maybe there was abuse. And so we look to be accepted by someone to take the place of. And that happens all the time. And maybe I've had this void in, you know, in, 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 in my dad. And so then I look to a relationship over here to be validated by maybe a father figure to an unhealthy level. Again, it's not wrong to have those relationships, mentors, and all those kind of things. Nothing wrong with that at all. But when I look to that to fill that void that only God can fill, it becomes an idol. why a lot of times, you know, even like young women, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to just make blanket statements, but they will, that there's, there's, there's something missing from maybe a dad to validate to, to here's the healthy look of masculinity, and then what they do is they begin to compromise sexually over here to look to something to fill the void that was missing. It happens over and over. And so there's this relational void, there's this relational hurt very real. I'm not diminishing that. But then the enemy jumps on it and tries to push us toward ultimately idolatry and not Christ. And we look to someone else to fill it. So what's the key to laying down this God's love and, 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 and casting it from us? How do we get rid of this idol in our lives? First and foremost, I think it's what Terry said up here is, is that we know God's Word. He speaks through His Word to us. And then here's the thing, do we really believe His Word? And then specifically, is, is I believe that it has everything to do with knowing His love. We were created to love God and be loved by God. That's a part of every human experience. We were created to love Him and be loved by Him. And what we do is we replace things for that love. But do we really know God loves us? And I believe that this is maybe the greatest battle that we fight every day is to really believe and really be convinced that God loves me deeply. It's getting that revelation of itself, like the light bulb coming on. Have you ever had those moments where you're trying to figure something out and it's maybe a season of frustration and then all of a sudden that light bulb comes on? Have you ever had those? It's a great feeling, especially if you're trying to put something together. I do that because I'm not that good at it. Like I'm following these directions and now I'm all messed up and I can't, you know, and if I get this thing that you guys have heard me moan about that. It should have taken an hour, here I am four hours later. And, you know, there's part of me, the flesh part of me, I'm just be honest, you just feel like picking it up and just tossing it out. But it's probably, I think I can build my own. I have better success with that. 
Sometimes when you're doing that, though, a light bulb comes on and you're like, oh, I get it. I missed this. Maybe I missed this part or I see what's going on. And there's nothing like revelation. And my greatest desire, my greatest prayer for you is that that would happen, not in a trivial matter of putting something together, but you would know God's love because I believe it can change everything about you. If you really believe it, that it's really, really true. Again, I believe that this is the area where the enemy battles the most. That we struggle with the love of God. Does He really love me? Am I a disappointment to Him? Do my sins, do my past sins disqualify me from His love? Does He cast me away, at, you know, just at, the, at every second that I maybe blow it, that He just pushes me out? And again, I'm not saying God wants us to live in sin. He loves us so much, and I think we understand His love that we will, we will live by His standards because we love Him. We follow His commandments because we love Him. But does He really love me? Because all of this, we have to bring it back to this basic thing here that, that God wants a relationship with us. It's about relationship with God. You can go back to the garden. The attack of the enemy on the love of God began in the garden. Remember, he starts calling God into question. Did God really say this? Did God really mean this? Well, God just doesn't want you to do this and that. He's holding out on you. And that, that, so the, the devil's lies, they don't get any more creative. They get a little more manipulative. And, and basically, he's going through every human heart to try to make you believe in some way that God doesn't really love you. You, you, you really believe God loves you? Do you really believe that? I don't think so. I think he's holding out on you. Well, look at your life. If God really loves you, then why are you going through this? Why are you dealing with that? If God really loves you, wouldn't you be completely well? If God really loves you, why would you have those financial difficulties? If God really loves you, and you can go on and on and constantly is to whisper to the enemy, does God, you think God really loves you? And I think that that revelation, guys, if we can get it, and that's ultimately the gospel message that we give to everyone else, is if you really understood God loved you, you would drop everything and follow Him. You wouldn't have a hundred different questions of why you shouldn't follow God. You wouldn't just look at it as religion. You would just say, God, thank you for your love. I want to follow you. And that's what we have to get as a revelation to God's people so that we in turn can spread that gospel and good news to other people. But if we're not convinced of it, we're not going to convince anyone else of it. And so I want to look at some scriptures on the love of God. And you guys can stop looking at my face up there at the moment. Jesus obviously set a standard about teaching about God's love. And then you have the apostles writing after the Gospels. And it's like this, this theme of love. They are trying to drive it home. They are trying to say, get this. You need to get this revelation. Everything you do flows out of it. And yes, there's a lot of teachings in the New Testament about how to live and what to do and how to handle things. But they're saying, back up a little bit. Don't just try to figure this out until you understand that Jesus loves you so much. And when you get that revelation, this stuff starts making sense. You do it out of relationship. And so those guys were trying to drive this home. So I'm going to go through these rather quickly. John 15, 9. This is Jesus in that whole chapter of what we call, um, you know, it's the, 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 the vine and the branches. This is right before Jesus is crucified in context. In John 13 through 18, he is 
giving them his heart and he's telling them things. That's why John 14, he says, don't be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. He's, he's kind of giving them his last sermon before he's arrested. In John 13, it says that he shows them his, the, 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 the extent of his love and he begins to wash their feet and become a servant to them. He says, this is how much I love you. Then in John 15, it's kind of this love chapter and, and he says, as the Father has loved me, listen to what he's saying, so I have loved you. He says, in other words, the way God the Father loves me, his, his one and only Son, that's how I love you. Now remain in my love. What is he saying? Stay there. Don't forget it. Remain in, remain there. When you get up tomorrow, be reminded that I love you. Remain there. You're going to have to walk in relationship with me every day to understand that. Christianity is not a one-time shot. It's not a prayer that you prayed 30 years ago. It's not a baptism that you have. It is a day-to-day relationship, understanding, remaining in God's love. So Jesus said, remain there. Stay there. See, we get into trouble when we stop remaining there. And it gets to work. What does Paul write? And again, the, the, these guys begin to drive home this idea. Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So what is demonstration? It's a proof. It's a proof. This is a declaration to the world out there. You want to know how much God loves you? He proved it. He didn't just say it. He proved you. He demonstrated by going to the cross that while we were sinners, while you were at your worst, while you were cursing him, he died for you. While you didn't care about him, he was caring about you. He proved his love. And I know that we, we hear these passages over and over, but don't lose the significance of them. And then Paul writes in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we will face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, angels, nor demons, the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, death, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So what is he saying? Do not associate hard times with God not loving you. He's dealing with all the things that would make us doubt God's love. And look at what Paul went through. He endured some heavy stuff, persecutions, beatings, imprisonment. And he always said, I know God loves me. And so he's saying, do not think that when you're going through something that God doesn't love you. And then he starts talking about the, the worries of today or fears for tomorrow. We don't know what's out there. And some of us can get vexed by what's in the future, what's going to happen. God, do you really love us? And he's saying, God does love you. Do not let those fears, do not let hardships, do not let struggles make you think God doesn't love you. He loves you deeply. You're taking notes. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm moving kind of quickly. Ephesians, Paul writes again, I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with his power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And listen to what he says, I pray that you, and this is to us, being rooted and established in love, there's a foundation in it. He said, I want you to be rooted and established in it. I want the foundation of your life to be Christ's love. Build on that. 
When we build a building, when we build a house, what's the, one of the most important things is laying a firm, solid foundation. And that's what Paul is saying. Is let's be rooted and grounded in it. Be established in it. So that everything else is when God calls you to something, when God says, well, hey, I want to I point out something that might be a sin in your life, understand that it is rooted and grounded in His love for us. And then he says, I want you to understand all God's holy people to grasp how high, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ. To know that love that passes knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a beautiful class of things. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? He says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And so even discipline is a proof of his love. Don't shake off discipline when he convicts you. Say, thank you, Dad, for pointing that out, that you're not just letting me go off on my own tangent and do whatever I want to do. Thank you that you're pointing that out. Thank you that you love me enough to correct me. And so don't even look at discipline as God's not loving you. It is because He loves you that He disciplines And then John, and the whole book of First John is just a theme over and over. It's like He repeats Himself over and over again, which I really like. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. This idea of lasting love, so that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. First John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Again, this is the proof. This is kind of echoing Paul. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He said there's a right way and a wrong way to do relationships. This is how God loves us. Jesus laid down his life. That's the proof. And then a chapter later, I'm um, right 1 John 4, it's almost like, again, he's repeating himself. Do you see a theme here? Do you see that he's almost like he's conversing with us and he goes, hey, you understand? It's about the love of God, right? You understand he loves you deeply. Now, I'm going to give you some instruction, but don't forget that. 1 John 4, this is how God showed his love among us. I mean, he just said this on the same thing in chapter uh, before. He sent his one and only son in the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son for as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also to love one another. Repeating, repeating. He says, don't forget this. Get it into your heart. And then 1 John 4, 18 through 19. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Where do we find perfect love? In Jesus Christ. Remember one of those times where, where, where you've made that love an idol is when we're fearful, when we, when we use those fears to begin to manipulate and control, and there's this emotional unstableness and insecurity. And we're looking for that relationship. It drives all kinds of unhealthy emotions. Because this perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he's first loved us. Again, the writers put this over and over again. I think their hearts were that the, the light bulb would go on in our hearts and our minds. Because even they struggled and they saw Jesus go across and they abandoned him at his greatest hour, his darkest hour, and they abandoned him. But when they came back together, remember he even restored Peter and they began to see his love 
And that's why they begin to change the world. This ragtag group of guys begin to change the world, not because of religious duty, not because Jesus commanded them to. They understood His love. They understood the gospel. They understood eternity in the light of His love. And I believe as this revelation changed their lives, this revelation can change us and how we live. His love will give you the peace that you're looking for. His love will give you the joy, the return, the hope, the validation. Again, He is love. It's always been about love. And so my encouragement, my prayer for you is that you will understand other relationships in light of His love. And if you have put an unhealthy worship into those other relationships, God is speaking to your heart today to say, repent of that. Let me point that out. Let me show you so that you can love in the right way. Again, when you understand Christ's love and you're walking in that, human relationships are sweeter. It will affect how we live and how we love others. I'm going to close with this. Um, one of the greatest stories that Jesus told was, I believe, a story of love. And I think if we can wrap our hearts and our minds around the story that you will be very familiar with when I tell it. But Jesus was getting to something here. And you need to understand in context, when he was walking the earth, his teachings were seemingly very radical. That's why the Pharisees had a hard time. One part of what he was doing is he was making Jehovah, Yahweh, the undefinable one. You know, Yahweh means undefinable one. He was making him intimate and loving, like personal. That's why, remember when the disciples just teach us to pray? What are the first two words? Our what? Father. That, that in that day, we, we look at them and go, oh, yeah, our Father, who are in heaven, above and we just say it. In that day, if you understand what Jesus is getting at, He's making Yahweh Dad. He's making Yahweh Father. He's making Him personal to us. And so one of the greatest stories, which has probably different meanings to it in different ways it ministers, but I think it was ultimately a gospel presentation of the love of God. Because, again, the people that, you know, before Jesus came and he was revealing this, in the Old Testament, you know, there was, there, you know David understood God's love. It's not that God was not loving. And, and, and in fact, you can see some of the prophetic uh, words from Zephaniah say that he rejoices over us and singing. I mean, you see the love of God, but they felt somewhat of a, a distance with, you know, with God. And Jesus came to, again, mend the relationship that was broken in the garden. Because even back in the garden, there was an idea of relationship. God would come in the cool of the day to be with Adam and Eve relationship. And so part of Jesus redeeming and mending that which had been broken. And so Jesus is telling this story that we call the product of son. And it's a story of love. And he says to them, and he's got this audience around him, and again, he says that there's this dad with these two boys. There's an older son and there's a younger son. The younger son comes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance. And you guys, you know, you know how an inheritance works. The parents have to pass away, and then they get the inheritance. So the younger son, you can almost sense the rebellion of his heart. I want what's mine, and basically you can just drop dead anyway. I, I don't care. I just want what's mine. Give me what's mine, and I'm, I'm leaving. The dad gives him his half of the inheritance. 
takes it. And then the Bible tells us that he goes off into this foreign land that he wastes his life on wild living. Now you can use your imagination for that. Later on, we have the older brother getting angry that they're celebrating him, but the older brother says, you know, he wasted it on prostitutes and, you know, only, only God knows what this kid was wasting his life on. But it, it was kind of this extreme example of a wasted life. We're, we understand that this, this father was very wealthy. This kid, if he would have invested right, would have probably have not had to work today in his life and have lived off the investment that his dad had given to him. And he could have been set forever. But he wasted it on wild living. And we just use your imagination. To the point where there's a famine in the land, he has nothing. He hires himself out to a pig farmer, even looking at pig's food and saying, that looks delicious. When you are in that place, things are not good for you. When he's longing and he says that, that the pig's food looks tasty, like to throw himself down there and move the pigs and say, and then he kind of has a bit of a revelation. And he says to himself, and he begins to say, oh my goodness, um, my, my, my dad's servants, have, they're better off than I am. And so he begins to rehearse this speech to his dad. He said, I know what I'll do. I, I, will, I, will, I will go home. I will tell my dad. I will just make a declaration. I will say, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I, I get that. But if you just hire me on as a servant, and he's thinking, at least I'll have a place to sleep, at least I'll have some food to eat. So he's rehearsing this, how it's all going to play out. And so he begins this long journey home. And Jesus, again, is driving at something here. And it is it, it so pertinent for each and every one of our hearts in this place today, and everyone that we come in contact with. Jesus is making a statement. You do not have a dad that is sitting in a recliner under his breath, just angry at this boy and just mad and just saying, I, you know, I, I, this kid has just killed me. You have a dad that Jesus paints that he's looking. He's looking down the path and he continues to look out and to see if the boy is, 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 is out there. And then he sees the boy and it says this. And Jesus is making a statement. He's talking about God the Father in this parable, in this story that he's telling. He is painting a picture of God the Father for us. And he says, the Father sees that boy a ways off. He sees him down the path. And what does he do? He doesn't cross his arm and look and just start shaking his head. I knew you'd be back here, Jesus. Yeah, run out of money? Thought so. Come on in. He runs to him. The people of this day, when Jesus is telling them, he has Jehovah Yahweh God running to people. Not that he's unstable, not that he needs people, because he chooses to love people, but the Father runs to the kid. This is the gospel, or this is what we live for. To understand that God loves us in this capacity. This kid has nothing to give, nothing to offer. He's wasted it all. He has lived wild, a wild, horrible life. Deserves judgment, really. 
and the father runs to him and the, just, and just engulfs this kid in the house. He smells like a pig. His clothes are tattered, and his dad is just grabbing him. The kid, he still doesn't even quite get it yet, and he goes through his reverse speech. Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I understand that. And your servants, and, and you know, they have a better offense. And, and he's going through it, and the dad doesn't even go there. And he says, bring the robe. What does the robe represent? It's the robe of righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's not our goodness that gets us to God. We don't run to God. He runs to us. He's the initiator. He says, bring the robe, the robe. And he says, now I'm covering you with my, my love. I'm covering you with my identity. He took the ring. He said, bring the ring. What was significant about the ring? The ring was a place of identity. It means that you are mine. You are my son. No, you are not a servant. There's a place in my house for you. You are not excluded from the family. You have a place in the family. And they begin to celebrate. And the father says, bring out the best half. We're going to have a big barbecue and we're going to have a party. Because the son of mine who was dead is now alive. He, he was lost, but now he is found. That's the picture of God's love. That's what all of the writers of the New Testament, that's what they're, they please understand how much God loves you. How He feels for you. That no matter what your past, no matter what your sin, no matter what you've done, you have a father that runs to you and says, You are a part of my family. There's a place for you at my table. And they begin to celebrate. And it's interesting you have the older brother. And Jesus tells this part of the story. That the older brother hears and he's lived there and he's kind of gone through the motions and he hears the party going on. And he's mad. And he even says, I can't believe yeah, it. I'm not even going to go in there. And the dad comes out and says, what's going on, man? What, what? He said, you know, you throw him a party. He goes and he wastes his money on prostitutes and wild living. You're throwing him a party. And here I am. I've been in your house all this time. And you won't even give me a little go to have even a little party with my friends. And he's kind of feeling self-piteous. And the dad puts his arm around him. And you see great love there. He says, oh, everything I have is yours. And I think what he's getting at is that Pharisee, the Pharisees that were resenting that, that Jesus would reach to someone else, that God would reach to someone else. It, it is us if we are not careful to cynically live for God for a long time and then look down our noses at people that are, that are coming to Christ and saying, you know, well, what, what's this a big deal about them? I've been here for years upon years and God says, everything I have is yours. The inheritance belongs to both of you. And you've gotten, you've turned cold and you've, what you've done is you're going through all the motions. You've become very religious, and that's the boy. You didn't understand my love either. Just like the, kid, the younger boy didn't understand my love, you didn't understand my love. You've become so rotely religious that you've missed out on my love and understanding who you are in me. It's two extremes. Religious, legalistic. I go to church, and I'm just like, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy. We, but we follow all the rules. It's like the Pharisees. We follow all the rules, and he says, and Jesus said, you know, you're, 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 you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You just forgot me. And so you have religious on one side, and then you have the 
the broken and the lost. And Jesus says, there's an inheritance. If you'll come to me and you understand my love, both of you need to repent, both of you need to get right and there's a place in my home for you. The love of God, is nothing like it. Will you stand with me? Jesus, please help us to understand the love. Lord, I pray today that we would not look at these scriptures that we've heard maybe a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. And go, oh, yeah, 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 I know that one. But we would hear it from your heart that how much you love us. God, I pray today that as you lovingly confront those idols in our hearts, Lord, if we look to relationships, human relationships, to fill the place that only you can be God to give us. Lord, we want to put you on the throne of our hearts once again. We want to put you as first place, as number one prayer, Lord, that God forgive us when we have idolized love in a wrong way toward other people. But Lord, I pray, and I believe the way that we can do that is to understand your great love, and to understand that we created us to know you, to love you, to be loved by you. And Lord, I pray that each day, each and every day, Lord, we as your people, so that we can spread this love to others, that we would do Jesus as you said, that we would remain in this love, we would remain in your love. Every day we'd get up and say, God loves me. In spite of how I'm feeling, God loves me. In spite of the struggle, the trouble, the, the, the issues that I'm facing, God loves me. And out of that love, I will live life of love others. And I will walk with you every day. Lord God, help us to understand that remain in your love and then spread that love to the world around us. In Jesus' name, and everyone's love. Amen. God bless you. I hope you have a fantastic day and a great day.